electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Scott. You have a good weekend, too. I'm John Ford. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange, an exclusive interview with New York Fed President John Williams. We will ask about the economy, policy flexibility, inflation, and the path of asset purchases. Plus, should the so-called joke digital currency Dogecoin be taken seriously? The argument for why it matters to the markets and the chip industry is facing a new problem the weather. But we begin, of course, with the markets. Dom Chu with those numbers. Interesting markets, not from the macro perspective, but some individualized pockets of the market that are showing some real life. First of all, the Dow Industrials, as you can see here, up roughly one quarter of 1%. The S&P 500 just about flat on the day. At the highs, we were up roughly about 17 points. At the lows, down about five. And the Nasdaq Composite holding steady to around that 13,880 level, currently up about one-tenth of 1% there. So again, Steady moves in the market overall. But let's jump to some of the hot spots in the market that we've seen so far today. First of all, check out shares of Palantir, up 11%. That's roughly just off the highs of the session so far. The big data analytics company, remember, had a big earnings report, a little bit of disappointment there. A six-day losing streak that saw it lose about 34% of its overall value. It's popping up a little bit here. Remember, ARK Invest, Kathy Wood made some positive comments, upping their stake in the company a little bit. Earlier this week, they announced that. And then we've got a little bit of activity with Palantir being mentioned in the Wall Street Bets Reddit forum. So that's adding to some optimism about that stock. So those shares up about 12 percent. And then, of course, you've got to talk about what's happening with Bitcoin. Another record high today, 54,765, the last trade there. That's just a hair below the 54,866 or thereabouts roughly record high that we saw just in the last few moments or so here. But still, that 5% move higher puts the one-year total return at 440% overall. So Bitcoin price is certainly still catching attention. I would say this, though, John, over the last eight or nine sessions, we've been pretty close to very extended above its 50-day average price. We'll see if that (laughs) momentum can still continue. 50-day average price. Does does that even matter? Is that a thing for Bitcoin? I don't don't think it is. I don't don't think there's any fundamental metric or technical metric you can use to track these types of things. Dom Chu, thank you. The market's also getting a boost from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's comments on CNBC yesterday that a large COVID relief package is necessary and could help the U.S. return to full employment in a year. She also said there are some risks to the economy. Inflation has been very low for over a decade. And, um, you know, it's a risk, but it's a risk that the Federal Reserve and others have tools to address. The greater risk is of scarring of people having this pandemic take a permanent lifelong toll on their lives and livelihoods. For more on the state of economy, maybe the state of those tools, we are joined by Steve Leisman and New York Federal Reserve President John Williams. Steve, take it away. John, thanks. It just so happens that uh, John Williams is a former colleague of Janet Yellen, so we'll see. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. How uh, you much agree or disagree with the new uh, Treasury Secretary. Let me begin in a slightly different place and come back to the issue of stimulus, and they're all related, John. But the issue of 
the 10-year yield, which is now up near 135, and it's had quite a run this year. It was down below uh, 1% when we began the year. Do you worry that yields are getting up or near a place where it becomes restrictive to economic activity? Um, well, say hi, hi, Steve. It's uh, good to see you. Good to join the uh, program today. Um, I also should mention that today is my uh, older son Kenneth's birthday. So happy birthday to Kenneth. Happy 23rd birthday to Kenneth. Um, uh, if he's watching uh, this program. Uh, the, you know, in terms of watching the 10-year yield, obviously it's an important indicator. Uh, what, what I've seen over the past several months is, uh, I think, a reflection of a number of factors around the economy. One is clearly extra uh, additional fiscal support uh, that we saw late last year, and we're, you know, uh, obviously a lot of discussions around that um, and expectations of additional fiscal support. Also progress on vaccination, um, here in the U.S. And, and around the world. So, you know, what I see is the markets, especially the um, uh, Treasury market, responding to uh, some good news uh, on vaccination and progress there um, and maybe reduced downside risks there and news around additional fiscal support, which should, you know, accelerate uh, getting back to full maximum employment. So, you know, to my mind, these are we're seeing signs of rising inflation expectations back to levels that I think are consistent uh, closer to consistent with our uh, 2% long run goal and signs of somewhat higher real yields off in the future, reflecting greater optimism in the economy. So it's not to me a, a concern. It's, it's a more of a reflection of, I think, um, markets perception of a stronger economic outlook. John, as you correctly state, you know, real yields are, are up a bit, but they're still, I believe, negative if you just take a general uh, inflation number and subtract it from the yield. Um, how do you think about when and if the rise in yields becomes something that ends up restricting or putting a break on economic activity such that you think it might be something the Federal Reserve needs to do something about? Well, as you point out, they're quite negative, and not just in the United States, but in you know many uh, economies or have uh, negative long-term yields. And I do think that reflects the you know extraordinary uh, economic downturns that countries around the world have have seen, and you know the expectation is going to take quite some time for economies to get back uh, to full strength. It's also in the context of a very low uh, neutral or normal. Uh, interest rates as as well as we've talked about before. Uh, interest rates even before the pandemic had, um, you know, kind of the normal level of interest rates w was quite a bit lower. Uh, so in terms of thinking about this again, it, we're, you know, the Federal Reserve were very much focused on maximum employment and price stability, achieving a sustained uh, two percent inflation rate, and you know, uh, achieving a maximum employment. So the context for me and thinking about monetary policy is is not so much exactly where the yields are um, in terms of ten-year yields or other other financial, um, you know, uh, prices, but really about how do we best uh, uh, position monetary policy for success in, in achieving our goals. Let's now layer in the discussion, John, if you would, um, about the coming stimulus and, and or relief bill, what you, if you if you will. Um, the idea that there's another 1.5, 1.6, the president has asked for 1.9 trillion dollars of additional federal spending that's coming, which, you know, some economists have described as, you know, uh, you know, pouring gasoline on a pretty already hot fire. If you think about where GDP forecasts are right now, does it worry you that perhaps there's too much stimulus coming down the pike? Now, the first thing I'm going to say won't surprise you that that's the job of elected members of Congress and the president uh, to decide on fiscal policy. And I'll, I'll state a monetary policy. Uh, honestly, right now, the economy is still in a pretty very deep hole. 
employment is down by roughly 10 million from where it was uh, before the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, we are unemployment is still uh, quite high and employment to population ratios are really uh, quite a bit lower than we would, uh, would like to see. So I, I think right now, um, you know, the economy has a ways, to, uh, quite a ways to go to get back to maximum employment, and we have a ways to go to get back to our 2% inflation target. So I'm not really concerned uh, about stimulus uh, or uh, fiscal support right now uh, being excessive or anything like that. Uh, really, what I want to see is an economy that gets back to full strength as, as soon as possible, obviously in the context of a, uh, a, two, a sustained 2% inflation rate. John, talking about assets in general, um, the uh, Federal Reserve Monetary Policy Report to Congress today, which I uh, assume you're aware of, talked about asset valuation pressures having returned to or exceeding pre-pandemic levels. I guess that's a euphemism for asset prices being high. Um, how much concern do you have about that and the idea that Fed policy underpins those kinds of uh, high asset prices? Well, you know, this does take us back to the, you know, very high asset prices we were seeing even even last year and before. Um, and clearly, equity prices are quite high. We're seeing uh, a quite a pickup in um, in uh, residential real estate prices, and you know, very tight spreads on corporate debt uh, instruments. So there's definitely a lot of indications of, of of very strong asset prices. I do think it reflects a couple of uh, fundamental factors. One is I think that you know market participants and investors around the world. Are looking ahead uh, through this year and looking into an economy that uh, hopefully will have a pretty robust recovery and a strong expansion in, over the next several years, uh, which would support uh, stronger valuations. I also think that we still are in a globally low interest rate environment, uh, even abstracting from the cyclical part of uh, of that. That very low in, very low yields on um, you know uh, sovereign uh, debt or on, on treasury securities, things like that. Uh, does all else equal imply higher valuations for asset prices? So I think the big drivers, the fundamental drivers, are really kind of optimism uh, among investors uh, to get um, you know that the, the uh, U.S. economy and the global economy is going to have a strong uh, recovery and expansion, and st and, uh, and expectations of low rates, uh, um, you know, well off into the future. Um, and those combined will give you higher asset valuations. In terms of concerns around this. You know, it's one thing to say that the fundamentals kind of tell you that asset prices should be um, somewhat higher. Obviously, the concern would be if that gets out of control or we see really strong imbalances uh, resulting from that uh, in terms of business or household uh, or uh, behavior by businesses or households or financial institutions. And there, I, I actually don't see that really the evidence um, for that. Okay. John, let's talk about another asset price that seems to be very high right now, which is Bitcoin. Tell us how a central banker looks not only at a cryptocurrency, but at a cryptocurrency that I have doubled in value in a very short amount of time. Uh, are there levels of concern? And what do you say to people who believe that maybe one of these days something like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency might become the normal or regular currency of the United States? Well, I'm not going to comment specifically on Bitcoin or any of the uh, in, you know, cryptocurrencies, um, you know, in terms of what their proper valuation is. I'm not not an expert at that. I, I do think that technology uh, broadly described is transforming 
the payments landscape globally. Uh, not, and I'm not here just talking about cryptocurrencies, but you know, uh, the Federal Reserve is developing an, an, a new real-time gross settlement payment system. Other central banks around the world are doing that. We're seeing other innovative ideas uh, in the private sector of coming up with new ways of doing payments faster, easier, more efficiently. So I do think in the, the broader context, this is going to be a period of a lot of innovation, a lot of new products that hopefully uh, will actually solve some problems that we've had in our payment system. And that's high costs, the challenges of cross-border payments or remittances, and some of those other issues. So I do see this as a period where you know the private sector, central banks, and others are really actively thinking about how do we best, you know, how do we uh, kind of take, make, modernize, if you will, uh, payments. And I think of cryptocurrencies as being a perhaps a separate issue of that, but definitely, you know, in the world of central banking and obviously in the in the banking world too, uh, there's been a lot of study of the technology, the underlying technology of blockchain and other aspects of that, and how could those either help uh, or you know um, be used um, in in uh, with some of these ideas so that i do see this as a world of change i don't know exactly i'm not going to comment specifically about any particular um uh, kind of product okay. but um but that's how i see it john one more question here i can't let you go without asking about the the uh the future of monetary policy um i think you guys have made it clear that the uh uh, quantitative easing of what you're doing or, or asset purchase doing $120 billion a month, that will go down before you raise interest rates. What's the outlook for that? Do you believe something like reducing it or tapering it is on the cards for sometime this year? Well, as as we've said from the beginning, uh, our decisions on monetary policy, uh, and we've communicated this, I think, uh, consistently, uh, are going to be based on where where the economy is, specifically re relative to our maximum employment and price stability goals. And so the answer to that question is going to be, it depends, but it, importantly, it depends on how we're doing in the economy in terms of the actual data, in terms of the actual performance uh, rel uh, 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 referring to maximum employment in terms of labor market, in terms of economic growth, and also how we're doing uh, in terms of uh, reaching our 2% uh, our inflation objective on a sustained basis. So it's going to, all of our decisions, whether it's around our asset purchases, uh, are going to be driven by um, uh, how we're doing and how we see us doing uh, in terms of those two goals. Now, we've uh, used specific language around that, looking for substantial uh, progress in terms of our asset purchases. Obviously, right now, uh, we're still, uh, you know, we haven't seen, uh, since we made that announcement, you know, we've been in, a, the economy has been in a very slow period uh, due to the winter uh, wave of uh, COVID, um, uh, you know, spread of COVID. Uh, but so right now, I'm, I am in a wait and see mode, and we're going to watch watch the data and see how the economy does and specifically focusing on the progress on our two goals and make the hope make the decisions that are appropriate to achieve those goals uh, in the future. John, you've been very generous with your time. Appreciate your joining us here on the exchange and a big happy birthday to your son, Ken, who just has to be watching. What else would he be doing? <laughs> I hope so. All right. All right. Thanks, John. Thank back to you. And thank you, Steve Leisman, as well. Now coming up, the overall market's performance might have been underwhelming this week, but the reopening trade was red hot. Investors piled into cruises, hotels, airlines, and casinos, while at-home names fell short. Is it the right rotation for investors? Plus, Elon Musk says Bitcoin is, quote, less dumb than cash, unquote. He knows cars and rockets. Is he right about crypto? We will explore. The exchange is back in two.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. At Capel University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back. The Dow hit a new intraday high today. Despite a mixed week for stocks, investors having a tough time finding gains. But one place to find them could be reopening stocks. Names like Marriott, Wynn, and American Airlines all higher this week, including an 18% surge for Carnival Cruise Lines. But meantime, the stay-at-home trade is dozing off on the couch. 2020 darlings like Zoom Video, Netflix, and Peloton all in the red. So is a rotation into the recovery trade now underway? Let's bring in Katarina Simonetti, the Senior Vice President at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, and George Cipollone, Portfolio Manager at Penn Mutual Asset Management. Guys, happy Friday. Uh, Katarina, how much of this, what we're seeing this week, is about reopening hopes? How much of it is just maybe selling out of some big gainers as major indices hit new highs? John, thank you for having me on the show. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, market has been heavily supported. It is strong. The earnings season delivered some great surprises. And uh, I think that the the we are definitely getting on board with the reopening philosophy and getting behind the cyclical names and getting behind the, uh, the story of reopening and repositioning our portfolios to reflect the, what's going to uh, come in that post-vaccine, post COVID type of era, which is really exciting. Uh, but having said that, I think that consumers have developed some really powerful habits over the course of the last nine months, and stay-at-home names should definitely not be discounted. There is a place for them in the portfolio, and uh, you know we certainly are paying attention and owning them. Yeah, it's not as if we're not going to spend any time at home when we eventually are cleared to really go out. George, I was just listening to Steve Leisman's excellent interview uh, with New York Fed President John Williams, and something that struck me was just this idea of optimism justifying so many of the valuations that we're seeing in the market now. But it seems to me like the optimism has become the story driving the optimism. Is that dangerous at some point? It, it absolutely could be. And so we're value investors. And, and so we look at valuations and valuations are really important to us. And so if you think of the Fed's impact, they've had two major impacts here. They've kept interest rates low, which has driven up asset prices. And number two, they have um, stimulated a certain behavior in the market where people tend to be a little more irresponsible. And we've seen that through certain examples of specific stocks like GameStop, for example. <laughs> yeah. And so so, yes, to your point, we are seeing that. And that is that is behavior that is being led uh, through Fed action. So that is something to be cautious about. Um, and then if you know, just going back to this reflation trade, I think it's important. We are income investors. So you are seeing a dramatic impact in the bond market today. And I think that's another thing that's you know very, very important to keep an eye on. Katarina, how do you um, sort of hedge against, protect yourself against being 
too optimistic about the optimism, uh, getting numb to, to the valuations. I mean, bonds don't do what they used to do. So what's your strategy? Our larger strategy is that this is not the time to perhaps just invest in broader indexes. This is very much a stock pickers market, and this is very much the market where investors have to pay attention to earnings, to valuations, to data, interest rates, for example, we believe that is one of the most important piece of data to watch, specifically Of course, we know that interest rates uh, have been going up gradually over the course of last couple of months, but the speed with which this were to happen, and to to George's point, we can expect some type of pullbacks in the market. We can expect that interest rates are going to have an effect on consumers' confidence and consumer participation in the market. But if interest rates were to go up really quickly, Mm. unexpectedly, quickly or to the extent that the general public is not expected, uh, then perhaps some type of a broader correction um, will happen. So, George, you were just talking about value. Where do investors go for it now? Yeah, so so you have. I, I agree 100% with Katarina. You have to be selective. You cannot be as broad as you were in the past. I mean, if you bought just the broad LQD or you bought the TLT, for example, which is invested in long treasuries, you are down 13 to 14% just since last July. That's a pretty steep decline. So as, a, as, a, as an income investor, we have found value across the market cap spectrum in large, small, and, and dividend payers. We've also found value on the front end of the high yield curve, and, and we think there is some good value there, also in convertible bonds. Convertible bonds have this beautiful risk-reward relationship where if you, if you buy the right company with the right balance sheet, companies that have more cash than debt, you're protected on the downside. But as the stocks increase and the underlying common stock increases, you can make multiples, 25, 50%, 100% on your money. Hmm. And we like that risk-reward trade-off there. All right. Well, thank you, Katarina. George, have a good weekend. You too. Thank you. Now, for more ideas on how to invest in this market, head to CNBC Pro. You'll find Goldman's top energy pick, BMO's growth plays, and why Citi sees a 10% pullback. Now, coming up, President Biden getting ready to tour a Pfizer COVID vaccine manufacturing plant and meet with workers. we got the latest on production and distribution across the country as weather delays shipments. Plus, the case for why Dogecoin should be taken seriously. And don't forget, you can watch on the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Shortages of drinking water are now taking center stage in Texas. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner visiting a water distribution site this morning. The shortages have also spread to cities in Tennessee and Mississippi. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says that nearly 75 percent of the state's nursing home residents have been vaccinated for COVID-19. He also announced an easing of capacity on indoor dining. In one week, we'll go to 35 percent in New York City restaurants, which is consistent with New Jersey. What's happening now is people in New York City, Staten Island, Manhattan, uh, are going to New Jersey, to those restaurants. Uh, So it's not really accomplishing a purpose. 
and Britain's Prince Harry and his wife Meghan say they will not be returning as working members of the royal family. They, of course, stepped away from those duties a year ago. Tonight on the news with Shepard Smith is going to take a look at what led them to that decision and what may be next for the couple. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. And it is Friday. That means maybe you can rest, but money never sleeps. So we're going to take a look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. It may be the shortest month of the year, but February is closing out with a long list of events. Earnings will test the at-home trade. Domino's and Papa John's gives us a glimpse at the hot pizza trade. DraftKings looking to justify its big rally. And in their earnings debut, we'll hear from delivery darling DoorDash and the reigning king of rentals, Airbnb. On the data front, we'll get key reads on the consumer, including confidence and spending. While the Case-Shiller Home Price Index and new home sales will tell us just how hot housing still is. And that's not all. Fed Chair Jay Powell testifies in front of Congress. Apple holds its annual shareholder meeting. And as the COVID vaccine becomes more widely available, the FDA meets to discuss granting emergency use authorization to Johnson & Johnson. And COVID vaccine manufacturers will appear on the Hill. That's your Friday Fast Forward. We're going to talk about some of that now as we wait for the FDA's meeting next week on that Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Let's look at where we stand now as health officials say weather has delayed 6 million COVID vaccine doses. Bring in our Meg Terrell. Meg, we're seeing news on Pfizer's vaccine today, cold storage, one dose efficacy and transmission. Uh, what do we know? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of this data normally, when we aren't in a pandemic, would come out before a product gets the FDA's clearance. But because they got this to market as fast as they possibly could, we are now getting a lot more information about the vaccine after it's been on the market. So one big piece of news is that Pfizer and its partner BioNTech have submitted data to the FDA uh, seeking clearance for their label that they can store this vaccine for two weeks at regular freezer temperatures uh, instead of having to have it at that arctically cold minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit for that long-term storage. So they think this could help make it easier um, to distribute the vaccine around the country and around the world. Now, some separate news from two studies out of Israel where there has been a massive vaccine rollout. Um, they are not yet peer-reviewed, but they suggest that the vaccine might reduce transmission. And there are also some data suggesting that there is high protection after one dose. Now, John, we've all heard the debate over whether we should spread out first doses of the vaccine and potentially delay the second dose of the vaccine. Dr. Fauci and Andy Slavitt on the White House COVID uh, briefing this morning really saying they are sticking to the two-dose need, um, but this will uh, raise more questions. However, the data were just out to 28 days after one dose, and so a knock is that we just don't know how long that one-dose protection will last, John. Meg, all of that sounds potentially really important to logistics, especially that two weeks at regular freezer temperatures, as opposed to having to have all of this special equipment. Have you heard anything about any sense about how much loss there has been uh, of vaccine because of the, that sub-zero freezing issue? You know, it's not something that we've heard is very well documented. We, we do hear anecdotes about this happening or when there are power failures, how doctors and healthcare workers have to scramble to try to use these vaccines as fast as they 
can. And of course, in these situations like we're hearing about in Texas, I mean, this is becoming even more of an emergency, but there haven't been great data on vaccine loss. One thing we did hear this morning, though, Andy Slavitt saying um, there have not been any doses lost to spoilage because of these delays we're seeing from the weather. Mm. Um, but in terms of, you know, the actual storage at hospitals and things like that, we, we just don't know. Yeah, we have to imagine, though, it, it could make a positive difference. Uh, Meg Terrell, thanks. Thanks. Now, coming up, Twitter hits an all-time high as investors ignore another call by Congress for CEO Jack Dorsey to testify. So why is Wall Street so bullish? Plus, Uber has a new UK problem, and it's Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors. Here is Halima Croft sharing how to silence your doubts and believe in yourself. Always believe you have the right to be in the room. I think that is one of the biggest hurdles that you have to get over. Silence that voice in your head that says, you're a diversity pick, you don't belong. Always know in your heart that you make that room better, that your views, your talent is important to getting the best outcomes for any organization that you're a part of. Now let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire Tech Edition. Here to break down the headlines with Josh Lipton, Deirdre Bosa, and Tim Seymour, CIO of Seymour Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. First, Twitter hit an all-time high this morning, but the stock has lost almost all of today's gains. Earlier this week, it actually surpassed $74.73 a share. It's all-time peak. It's set all the way back in December of 2013, shortly after its IPO question is, why? In fact, Twitter has been on a tear since the Capitol Hill riot and following the platform's decision to permanently suspend former President Trump. Uh, folks assumed that Twitter lost its main attraction that day, but so far the social media giant is proving that it's doing just fine. Maybe it's not a giant exactly, Josh. I mean, I don't know. But uh, what do you think is driving Twitter? Is it this promise of maybe some more paid services layered on top, the competition with Clubhouse? I don't know. What? Well, actually, that is interesting, John. That competition, that rival with Clubhouse um, is so interesting. I love the discussion you had on your show today about Squawk Alley. Um, you know, that's a rivalry that I want to see play out. I've been hanging out at Clubhouse. I get it. You know, it's live. It's real time. You raise your hand. You can jump in. Um, and now how, but obviously different entrepreneurs and companies see the popularity, the blood in the water. They're, they're going to jump in with clones of their own. And how that kind of plays be? out. Could um, this be? Could this be, Josh? Could it be an anti-Facebook trade? I mean, look at all the stuff that's going on there. I mean, we, we kind of lost Tim and Deirdre, so it's going to be rapid-fire Josh Lipton edition for a couple minutes here. So, I mean, is this anti-Facebook? Maybe. I mean, Facebook having plenty of issues here, Australia, for example. Well, listen. There's, there's, listen. There's all, I, there's all kinds of content, and there's all kinds of new ways you are distributing that content, and distributing is getting easier and easier. I think with this, listen. I, I get it. I see the interest and the attraction uh, when you're on there, and how these companies now get into this space. They put their own kind of spin on it, their own kind of character, their own kind of business model. It's going to be a lot of fun. I don't know, know necessarily there has to be one winner. We'll see how it plays out, but I do understand the, the attraction and the interest. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this one month. Twitter is up 57%. I mean, let me look over at Square, that other company that uh, Jack Dorsey is running. It's up 22%. That's crazy. I mean, the, the 
the valuation of these things is getting longer than Jack Dorsey's beard. Anyway, let's hop across the pond. Uber <laughs> losing a major employment rights case in the UK as the top court there rules its drivers are indeed workers and not contractors. So what now? This ruling could jeopardize Uber's business model in the UK, set a precedent for other gig economy companies. Uber, Uber's got to work with UK authorities to determine compensation for the drivers involved in a 2016 case. The company says it's also going to consult with all UK drivers to understand the changes that they want to see. Investors, though, they don't seem to mind this ruling. Shares of Uber had been higher today, have reversed course, but not by that much. Shares slightly in the red now. Josh, I don't know. I mean, these bureaucratic things, I mean, look how slow Brexit moved. How long is it really going to take these issues to hit Uber in just the UK. And now the UK, I mean, it's not all of Europe. Who knows if it even has broader implications. You think investors have gotten used to the idea that if you're Uber, it's a slog. You got to figure these things out. But there's no really huge number two. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, John. Maybe if you're a tech investor, you've also gotten used to these headlines coming out of Europe. You know, it's going to be just the cost of business. You've also known this headline was a risk for some time. I am interested, John. Did we ever see? And you would know this better than I. But did we ever see surveys of these drivers um, in the UK? Um, the Uber drivers. I mean, the men and the women who were driving Uber themselves and what they thought about it. Did it some way? Did it was it was it tracking surveys we saw of those drivers here in the U.S. And would it, would that even matter to you, John? Uh, you know, I, I think it would matter. I certainly care what the workers, what the contractors feel. And let me tell you what, we're shuffling this lineup like a deck of cards. We got Deirdre Bosa back. We've also got Dom Chu. Dom, <laughs> on this Uber thing, yes. we've seen Uber go through so many different changes. How much does the UK matter when you're trying to be roughly global? I mean, granted, ex-China, because they're not playing there anymore. And, and now you're delivering food mostly. So, I mean... How much does it matter? In incrementally, I I'm not sure it does that much at all because the prevailing winds have been shifting this way for a while now. And we've been having this discussion even here in the United States about the difference between having a full-time employee or, or let's, let's look at this from the driver's perspective. Whether you want to be a full-time employee or whether you wanted to be the gig worker that only wanted to kind of turn your app on and take the rides and fares whenever you wanted to. In Europe, I could see this playing out because Europe has always been more focused on workers' rights. Uh, that many of the economies there are more socialist in nature, higher tax regimes, more benefits to citizenry, that sort of thing. But what it comes down to for the precedent it sets is whether or not the drivers really want to be guys who have to punch a time card in and out. If, if as a full-time employee, I was hypothetically made to work, say, eight to nine hours a day with a one-hour paid break, and I had to work a certain shift that the employer told me to, I'm not sure how many of the drivers would feel like that's something that they want to do, even with a minimum wage in place. So that's going to be a big precedent to set all across any jurisdiction for any ride-sharing app for, for sure out there, John. De Deirdre, we had this story on CNBC months ago yeah, about an, an Uber Eats driver making $8,000 in a month. I bet you he doesn't want to be an employee. Yeah, well, you know, there is this argument if you make them employees or workers as they would be in the United Kingdom, does that strip away that flexibility? That is a really, you know, sensitive point where labor activists say, no, that is not the case. You can still have flexible hours. And Uber has long argued that that would take away the flexibility. But, you know, I would actually argue that this is hugely important. The UK, London is a very, very important market for Uber. 60,000 drivers, and that's just on the ride sharing side. So it sets a very important precedent.
Uber is hopeful that it won't apply to all of its drivers. Right now, it's just a small group of them. It was an important victory in California. We've talked about it a lot, Prop 22. However, we will see how this continues to pay to play out because guess what? Prop 22 has passed on higher costs to who? Us, the riders, and Uber, the company, less higher than they would have been had workers been classified as employees. Um, but I think that there's just so much here. And I think that there's it's a reminder that there's regulatory battles ahead that are yeah. far from clear cut, even in California. Aren't, aren't the riders really burritos now? Mostly, though, when you think about it. I mean, it's not people so much that the Uber drivers are driving around. It's mostly it's our food. <laughs> anyway, w- let's bring it back home. Talk about chips. Not not those kinds of chips, though, not the takeout. Uh, chip manufacturers facing yet another challenge in the ongoing semiconductor shortage. Extreme weather. These winter storms that slam Texas are impacting the semiconductor sector as electricity and natural gas providers continue to suspend service to chip facilities in Austin. According to AccuWeather, they could be as much as nearly $50 billion in total damage and economic loss. Josh, uh, I'm wondering if this changes the pitch of Texas to everybody move here, if they're going to have to face some questions about is your infrastructure really ready for that? That's a fair point, John. I mean, we saw headlines. There's some big chip makers who were thinking about building some big new uh, facilities there. Does that, you know, given resources, infrastructure, does that change their minds? Certainly, this is coming at a really tough time because, you know, you are already seeing this chip crunch, this chip shortage. It is the most serious and severe we have seen in years. It has impacted production and everything from computers to cars. And now what you're seeing is because of this weather, there are chip makers in that Austin area that are having to idle their plants, their facilities. So think NXP and Finion and Samsung checked in with those companies this morning. They're still facing those challenges today. And when you talk to chip analysts, they say this, you know, usually in normal times wouldn't be a big deal. But because of the shortage, we're already feeling that they could exacerbate those problems, John. Yeah, I also wonder if it's uh, possibly an opening for some of these next generation energy companies that, that have different types of backup generators that don't require natural gas, you know, et cetera, whether this is an opening for them as well to be fail safe. Well, all right, Dom, now it seems like we can't go a week without Bitcoin reaching a fresh all-time high. We're talking about that at the beginning of the show. Today, though, a major milestone, the total value of the cryptocurrency topped $1 trillion. And what might have helped to push Bitcoin over that threshold? This not-so-ringing endorsement from Tesla CEO Elon Musk. In a tweet justifying Tesla's stake in Bitcoin, he called the crypto a less dumb form of liquidity than cash. Musk went on to tweet, Bitcoin is almost as BS as fiat money. Uh, The key word is almost. Okay, Dom. Um, Elon Musk says a lot of things uh, on Twitter. He goes through these streaks. I will note, uh, even though he said that about Bitcoin, most of Tesla's reserves are still in cash. So should we we pay attention to what he's saying or where he's got his money? Most of the world's reserves are still in cash, I I would argue. And and most of them are in U.S. dollars because it is still the preeminent reserve currency of the world. Now, so here's the argument that many people in the Bitcoin world or the crypto world will make about the benefits of crypto versus cash or fiat currency, as Elon Musk wants to put it. The idea that those fiat currencies, because of the massive push in money supply that's being put onto the market by central banks, has debased the values of all of these paper-backed currencies, central bank 
central bank-backed currencies. And that's the reason why there is a quote-unquote fundamental case for cryptocurrencies. Now, whether or not you really believe that, there's still a use case that needs to be made before people will widely adopt it. And of course, you know that many central banks and regulatory agencies, by the way, if a government decides to come out, not saying that it will, hypothetically, if a centrally planned government decides to come out and say, you know what, this is illegal, we're going to make it black market, we're going to do whatever like that, that takes away a lot of the use case out of it. So again, there's regulatory risks that Deirdre mentioned for things like ride sharing. It's still a big concern for many of the crypto people out there, because remember, in the early days, we talked about them used as, you know, currency for arms deals and, and drug transactions and that sort of thing. If that's what it goes back to, it's not going to be widely as adopted as people want to believe it will be, John. All right. Well, we're going to end it there. Uh, fun edition of Rapid Fire. We switched slingshots. We used different types of ammo. Uh, Josh Lipton, Dom Chu, Deidre Bosa, thanks. Tim Seymour, thank you just for the emotional support. Still ahead, stockpiling paper products and cooking at home both helped push some consumer staples names to record highs. But as economies reopen and more people get the vaccine, is that run coming to an end? We will dig into the staples sector next. And as we head to break, check out shares of Bumble, falling more than 4% today. Now, despite this drop, it has still climbed more than 64% since its IPO last Thursday. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The pandemic boosted several consumer staples names to record highs over the past year as people stocked up on packaged food and cleaning supplies. But as more people get vaccinated, is the sector setting itself up for a slump in 2021? Dom Chu playing offense and defense at the wall now with more. Dom. It is already starting to play out, John. That's the key here. For a lot of consumer staples investors out there, they've already seen the value come out of some of those quote-unquote high flyers that we saw during the virus pandemic peaks. Now, take a look at the sector overall, because as you can see with the consumer staple sector, it's up a very modest 1.5% over the last 12 months, handily underperforming the broader S&P 500, which is up about 15% roughly during that same time frame. Also, take a look at the valuation argument, because here we have been seeing over the course of the last decade, for the most part, investors paying a higher premium for consumer staple stocks when it comes to how much price they will pay for every dollar of earnings. Now, that's been the case over the last decade. As you can see here, the reddish orange line is the P.E. ratio on a forward next year's basis for the consumer staple sector. It's always pretty much above the blue line, which is the S&P 500, up until the past couple of years, and certainly during the virus pandemic, now all of a sudden, it's trading at a discount to the overall market. The S&P 500, of course, at record highs right now. But a little bit of that allure coming out of the consumer staples sector. That's one to watch there. As opposed to what's happening with elsewhere in the market, we are seeing a little bit of the momentum come out of some of these names. Look at Clorox bleach, disinfecting products, McCormick spices, the stay-at-home trade, cook-at-home trade, and, of course, Procter & Gamble from consumer goods. You can see over the last year, in the middle of the year, we've started to see a little bit of a decline in trend, so maybe that's going to be a trend that plays out if the vaccination protocols and distribution keeps on the upward trend that we're seeing, John. I'll send things back over to you. All right. Thank you, Dom. Uh, very real things there. But coming up, Dogecoin. The nominal cryptocurrency named after man's best friend is up more than 500% in the past month. What is behind the surge? Now, I have likened Dogecoin to Chuck E. Cheese tokens, but should we be taking these kinds of meme coins seriously? 
That's next. Dogecoin, the cryptocurrency that started off as a joke, is no longer a laughing matter for some people. The dog-themed crypto is up 1,000% year-to-date thanks to support from Elon Musk, Snoop Dogg, no kidding, and other celebrities. Coindesk says Dogecoin's rise reflects the power of collective belief and a longing for a more ideal form of crypto, and it is time to take it seriously. Joining me now is Emily Parker, the writer of that Coindesk op-ed, co-host of First Mover on Coindesk TV. Emily, I'm not convinced. I mean, I I really do think that Dogecoin is like digital Chuck E. Cheese tokens. I mean, they're really valuable to a toddler at Chuck E. Cheese, but once you leave, my goodness, I mean, in three years, is this really going to have value? I mean, I get what you're saying, and Dogecoin is, in fact, ridiculous. However, are Chuck E. Cheese tokens, do they have a market cap of $7 billion? Uh, do they have a 1,000% return year to date? So there is there is some difference, right? And the point that I'm making is not that Dogecoin is like a serious investment. Um, it's just that it, this is real money. And I think it really reflects the moment that we're in now where basically collective belief and collective action on social media can create a can can really raise the price of an asset, and that's what we've seen with uh, Dogecoin, and that's what we've seen with GameStop. Yeah, I, I hear you, but I, you know, on your point about the market cap, I think if we gave four-year-olds the power to make serious financial decisions, would you like this car or would you like this bag of Chuck E. Cheese tokens? <laughs> they would pick the bag, and you know, so in a way, um, I think it is analogous. So, is this more time to take? it seriously, Dogecoin itself, or time to take seriously the fact that people are so swept up in this meme-like moments that they've taken on a financial significance that can have real-world implications. Yes, I think the way you phrase it is actually more accurate. So to, just to be clear, I'm not encouraging people to buy Dogecoin. Okay, I'm just okay, saying that, yeah, <laughs> just saying that this is, it does, it, that's exactly right. We are just in a really interesting moment where assets are kind of being valued by the the masses, by the mob, by social media. And I think Dogecoin is just a perfect representation of that. Of course, there are people who truly believe in Dogecoin, but I don't think that all the investors in Dogecoin are investing based on fundamentals or investing, they're investing based on kind of like a, a crowd sentiment and the fact that, you know, it's, it's, it's just part of a, a zeitgeist. As we're learning more than ever in 2020 and 2021, there are people who truly believe in all kinds of things that may yeah. or may not have a fundamental basis. And so be careful out there, investor, whether it's GameStop, AMC, Dogecoin, what have you. Uh, Emily Parker of Coindesk, thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Now that will do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.